Hello, and welcome to episode one of the Practical Theology Ministries podcast. Yes, that is a mouthful. Yes, you will get over it, and you will learn how to say it, and you will like it. My name is Michael, and I am here today with Lou. Say hi, Lou. Hi. And we are here to tell you that if you have not read the entire story, then you have missed something. And you're probably wondering, why would you tell me that? That is obvious. See, you think it's obvious. But it's just a starting point. And by way of what we're going to do, just to kind of give you a rundown of what's going to happen. Our goal each time we gather together is to give you a little bit of a kick in the pants to start, an idea to chew on. Hopefully justify that idea with a short devotion from Scripture because everything we want to do is based on Scripture. Then show you where that idea has gone wrong in history hopefully demonstrate how proper biblical exegesis and understanding puts that wrong right, and then take that understanding and apply it to a pop culture or modern-day heresy that is digging through our world, because it's not like the world has gotten closer to Jesus in the last couple thousand years. So with all of that said, uh, is there anything else we need to cover, or should we just dive right in? I think we can dive right in. Dive right in. All right, so our devotional period is going to come from Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened, and also some some women among us, I'm sorry, some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, that is a starting point because that gives us a scriptural basis for not just what we should study, but what the extent of that study is, and how we should study it. So if you rewind, we're obviously post-crucifixion, post-resurrection. The disciples are beginning to scatter. They're going home. They have been defeated. They have lost. Jesus was not who they thought he was. Now, we know from Luke previously and other gospels that Jesus has already raised. He has been attested by the women. He has been seen. 
Now he's appearing to these guys. And if you're like me and you have the imagination fun, I, I always read the Jesus going, and he said to them, what things? Which like the, with like the Groucho Mark eyebrows going up and down. You know, Jesus has a sense of humor. God uses sarcasm, and it's a beautiful, glorious thing. But ultimately, the point is, the disciples, not just the apostles later, but the disciples missed it. And you're going, what do you mean it? I mean everything. Everybody missed it. There were testimonies and testimonies and visions and pictures and shadows and types throughout the Old Testament that were pointing to not just the need of a Messiah, but who that Messiah would be, what he would do, how he would do it, and the effect that that would accomplish. And the justification for that isn't just some ramblings of my own brain. It is Jesus's actual words. He said to them, verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Keep going. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. See, this isn't just, now you have to undo your, your American brain here. This is not just Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then the prophets, you know because as good Americans, we only actually know of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. No, there's also the book of the 12. When we talk about the prophets, we're talking about Samuel. We're talking about the work of the historical books. We're talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to the Messiah. It points to the work of Christ, the completion of the justifying work of God promised in Genesis 3 in the garden and brought to fruition by the Son incarnate, Christ himself. So as Jesus is explaining, he's justifying himself in his ministry and all that he did in light of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. Case in point, my favorite Bible trivia question, if you were going to go to the Old Testament and you were going to tell someone, look, you need to preach Jesus from the Old Testament so that it would be clear this is your one chance. Lou, where are you going? Isaiah 53. Going Isaiah 53. That's, that's top of my list right there. Right. It's 700 years before Christ. It's the suffering servant. It's pierced for our transgressions. We like sheep, you know, all the handles Messiah thing. You know, all that good stuff is, it's right there. All right, but you, you can't have that one. So what, what's your B choice? You got one? <laughs> Preaching Christ, well, mm -hmm. I would go to Genesis 3 and 15. See, that's, that's one of my top five also. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. You go to Genesis 3 because what have you got? You've got that proto-evangelion, the first gospel. The sin has come. There's the promise of the son of the woman. He's going to crush the serpent, and we're done here. But no, you can't have that one either. Okay, well, Paul, he liked... Um, uh, Genesis, uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. See, so same said, thing. You get the promise, you yeah. get the calling, right. the, the nations are going to be blessed, all of those things. Nope, see, that wasn't it either. Peter goes to Joel. And you're going, what's a Joel? See, that, that, you, you wouldn't believe how many people raised in church go, there's a Joel. Yeah, three little chapters, uh, apocalyptic prophecy of the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, which is what we would now term the second coming when God will come in judgment of the living and the dead. Peter starts there. And not only does he start there, but he goes, all that stuff, pow, it's right now. See, we don't just get pictures of Christ in the big ones. You know, we don't just have Genesis 3 and Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. We have the praises 
of God in Psalms 148, 149, 150. Those are praises to Christ. We have the promises of peace and security in God through the law in Psalm 1. Those are promises fulfilled in Christ. We have the judgment of God in Genesis, what, 6, 7, and 8, and also in Genesis 19. What is that? That's a warning of rejecting the love and law of God and being forsaken. That's a promise that's going to be fulfilled when we get to the end of the book in Revelation. These are all things that point us to Christ. The headship of Abraham, the headship of Abimelech, as you see the work of the nations, the the federal head of, of Pharaoh in Egypt. These are all pictures and foreshadowings of what Christ ultimately does and, and the way that both blessing and cursing from God works itself out through a nation. Because as through one man sin enters the world, how does redemption enter? By one man as well. You have the same idea going forward. So when we read our Bible, we don't just get to go at it with a meat cleaver. We have a story unfolding from beginning to end as given by God. And again, this is not like, hey, this dude's got a a random idea. I wonder what he's got. No, no, no. This is how Jesus explains we should look at the Old Testament. This is how Jesus himself read the Old Testament when he refutes the idea of a lack of resurrection. What does he do? He goes to an obscure, simple idea God says what? I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. So he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, because as I am. And he says that at a time when they're dead. So they must be around somewhere. Right. See, he goes, he goes to these minuscule things. Well, why did Moses let us have divorce? Well, because your hearts were hard. It wasn't like this. How was it in the beginning? One flesh cleaving, leaving father and mother from Genesis 2. Jesus read his Bible in this way as a consistent testimony from God. He calls us to do the same because ultimately that consistent testimony is pointing to the work that God is doing. What work is God doing? He's redeeming a people that he has made that will worship and serve and honor his name and who he is. And how will he do that? By washing their sins, by bringing them into the courts of his praise, by his great work, not theirs, and demonstrating his mercy, grace, love, justice, wrath, patience, all of the things that make God God in his holy perfection. He will show and we will therefore worship And that begins from the very beginning, and it continues on throughout the books. So, when we address theology, we're not just addressing a verse here or a verse there. We're addressing a grand narrative, a total story, and the verse that we're looking at, or the passage that we're examining, has to fit into a context so that it, one, makes sense and two, actually applies and explains what God wishes for it to mean. Not me, not Lou, not you, not anybody else. It's got to be grounded in an understanding that God has given. All right, I've been going for a while. Am I missing something here? You're not missing anything. Uh, I think one key point to, uh, to, to add to all of that is the fact that in the first century, to the disciples, to Jesus, the Bible was what we call the Old Testament. Yes. The, the, the letters of the New Testament uh, in our reading in Luke had not been codified and written down. They were orally transmitted to the people. Um, it's important for us to recognize what they considered as scripture in the first century. Well, and we, do, and we have a mixture of both. We have an oral tradition and we do have a written tradition. Absolutely. And that's one of the beauties of the, this is what, you know, we get annoyed when we read our New Testament because we go, oh, it's those evil scribes and Pharisees. 
in a roundabout way, they're kind of the helpful heroes of the story because who do you think is doing all this preservation of the writings of Moses and this, the, the history of Samuel and the teachings of David and the Psalms? Who do you think is preserving all this? Absolutely. It's those evil scribes and Pharisees. Right. <laughs> it's helpful. So yes, their Bible, when Paul starts talking that all scripture is God-breathed, he's not necessarily talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. Right, the what context. We, what we call the, 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 the 39 books, what did it do, 20, 22, 24, somewhere in there, because the book of the 12 is one book. Right. Um, Samuel and, and uh, Kings is just Kings. It's one book. So I think there's just 22. Right. But that, that Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is the scripture. Right. When you're going to prove God, you're going to prove Christ. Right. You're proving it from there. That's why when you read Paul, you know, all those little weird markings that you have in your, in your letters from Paul where all of a sudden it's, it's a shrunken down paragraph. Right. Those are Old Testament quotes. Absolutely. You need that stuff. It's necessary and good for you. It puts, again, it puts our New Testament in context. It puts the work of Christ in history, and it gives a, a basis for what's going on. Um, I've heard this put before this way, and I, I think this is good. I think you'll like it. The New Testament is a book without a beginning, and the Old Testament is a book without an ending. Nice. And that's why they have to go together. Yes. This is why we have to still study both. Right. I mean, the early church preached Christ from yes. the Old Testament. Yes. We need to get back to preaching Christ from all of Scripture. We, and, we can't just leave pieces of it out because it's convenient for us. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. And that leads us to one of our first apologetic issues because... When we talk about theology, we're not just talking about the here and now. We're talking about historic basis. So we're talking about historic theology or historical theology. And one of the first heresies of the church is someone who attacked this very idea. Our, our lovely church history hero, the man named Marcion. Yeah, <laughs> or if you want to be technical, Marcion, depending Marcion, on where you go with. Was he French? No. no, he wasn't French. But no, he, no, he was not. Oh, 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 it is Marcion. <laughs> he shall carve up the Bible like an onion. I apologize, but that was necessary. <laughs> yeah, now that's stuck in my head. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm going to be thinking of that. <laughs> yeah, uh, Marcion uh, was, very, was a very early church heretic. He was probably the first heretic that they denounced and kicked out. He was... He was born in the late first century, died in about middle second century. Mm -hmm. um, the funny thing is, he was so profound. He, he was so profound, and 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 he influenced the early church so much. But yet, we have no physical writings from him. All we have are writings from like people like Justin Martyr um, in the early church, and they they say a lot of interesting things, um, but. Before we get to any of those interesting things, what was his, his, his whole agenda, his whole purpose was to paint a picture of a different God. From the, the God of the Old Testament was, a, was the creator God. He acknowledged that. But he was also an evil God. Jesus Christ was the son of of the God of the New Testament. See, now, this is fancy theological term of the day, or at least for right now, dualism or ditheism. What you're dealing in is one of the oldest ideas about God. We get this, see, this is where Star Wars doesn't help you. See, there's, when it comes to God, there's no good side and dark side, and then they're fighting for supremacy. There's God. Yes, Satan exists. Yes, his demons are real. Yes, they are at work in the world. No, 
They are not competing with God. No, they do not have equal power. No, they have no chance of winning. Hence the, you know, the end of the book. That's why we read the whole thing when we do this. But we get a tendency to think, you know, good guy, bad guy, there's a struggle going on. No, 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 there, there's, there's no struggle. We do not have an equal authority outside of God. We have God omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign ruler over his creation. Now, Marcion doesn't like that idea, so he wants to attack it. Yes, he wants to erase all the Jewishness, <laughs> period. He, he doesn't want any of it in there. Do you ever notice that every time we start carving the Bible the least little bit, that's the first thing that goes? We got to make sure we get rid of those pesky Jews. Right, right. Why? I've never, un- I've never understood this. Like, we can keep Jesus the Jew, but we can't keep any of the other ones. Right, from the tribe of <laughs> Judah. I mean... He's the apex Jew, right? Uh, don't, don't say that. People start getting weird images of big noses or something, and it gets offensive. No, but, but you're right. There's a historical grounding. This is, now you're, see, you're starting to figure out why the starting point was what it was. Right. See, so now how does Marcin go about this? How are we going to get rid of this mean, old, nasty Old Testament God? Well, he was a redactionist. He uh, picked the, the parts of the New Testament writings that he, he liked. He left out all of the Old Testament writings, um, even... The writings of Paul, he liked, he liked a lot of their writings, of his writings, but even those were redacted to, to say what he wanted. Um, what does he end up with, 10 letters of Paul? Well, I, I'm not sure. Um, I, think he, I think he drops the pastoral epistles. So no, he, no he First does. Timothy, no Second Timothy, right. no Titus. Right, they're too Jewish. Yeah, <laughs> I don't you love, too Jewish. They're Titus more. isn't Jewish, but a letter to him who's pastoring a church in a non-Jewish area right. for a bunch of quote-unquote pagans is too Jewish for this guy. Cut it out. This, this is awesome. He loves Galatians. He, he saw that the, the, the work that Paul did there against the, the Judaizers and, and the way that they were improperly trying to yoke the, uh, the New Testament Gentile believers. Um, he, he liked that a lot. He, he, he worked and he went with that. Um, one of the interesting things is when I was reading about him and studying him is the fact that um, by the time he was denounced, he went to Rome and about 140. Mm-hmm. By 144, he was condemned and called a heretic. But it didn't stop there. It said that almost all, Justin Martyr recorded that almost all of Christianity was following his work. It, because he's also got a ba- he's got a background. He's got docetism on the rise um, from dakeo to uh, to a see or a peer. So the idea that Jesus doesn't have a physical body. Well, see, here's the problem with that. You take away the physical body, what have you lost? We don't have a birth. We don't have a death. We don't have a resurrection. We don't actually have a salvation. You can't conquer a death that doesn't actually kill you, can you? No, no, it doesn't think so. make sense, does it? <laughs> And if we don't get a death, then we don't get a resurrection. If we don't get a resurrection where a body actually comes out of the tomb, then do we actually have a conquering? Do we actually have death put aside? Do we actually have an ascended savior? I don't think so. We have a lie. But this is what docetism leaves you with. This is what it gives you. This becomes part of the first Gnostic heresy, which um, Marcion, our French heretic, he's not French, he's from Turkey, well, what's now Turkey, but he, he, our, our little buddy, this is where his background comes out of, and this is what he borrows from. This is one of the other reasons why you have to lose the entirety of the Old Testament if you're Marcion, because what is the entire of the Old Testament based upon? What is it pointing to? It's pointing to a person. Absolutely. We're looking for a king, kings are people too. We're looking for a prophet, 
Prophets are people too. We need a priest to do a work. Priests are people. We need a representative. What are we? Representatives. Well, no, we're people. Yeah, we're people. In order to represent people, you have to be people or a person or something like that. Got it. (laughs) We're a professionally run program here, folks. Don't ever doubt that. So in this setup, Marcion has now carved, cut, dissected his Bible so that he's now got his own Bible. Now, there is an offshoot discussion that we are not going to get too far into, but Whenever someone looks at you and goes, well, the Bible was invented by Constantine in the Council of Nicaea in 325, slap them. Right. Okay? You have my permission, slap them. Well, you might want to make sure you're bigger than they are first. But, you know, if, if all else applies, do that. Because from the very beginning, see, this is why this is important. In order to condemn Marcion for cutting out parts of the canon, what do we actually have to have being established? The canon. We have to actually have a canon. Right. We have to have a baseline, a rule of faith that people are following, which is what canon is. It's a rule. It's a measuring rod. So even as early as the, the beginning of the second century, you're talking 120s, 130s, 140s, we actually have a standardization, or at least the beginnings of it, right. of what is accepted scripture. Right. And included in that accepted scripture is Old Testament, Gospels, Four, not 27, I don't care what Bart Ehrman says. Letters of Paul, letters of Peter. Yes, I know there's, there was some debate about Second Peter for a while, but it makes the cut. Revelation was mostly accepted, and let's just be honest for two minutes. Um, if there's a book in the New Testament that you really have to raise questions about if you've only read it the first time, I think Revelation qualifies. Right. Like, you're just like, what, what, what's this cup and the, and the blood and the bowl? Like, I, I understand people having questions about that. Hebrews was a question because we weren't sure who wrote it. Paul wrote it. We'll talk about that later. Other than that, we basically get the New Testament the way it is handed down. And this is solidified into the second century quite early because, again, in order to refute this guy, you actually have to have something going, no, 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 this, this is what we deal with. This is what we use. Right. Uh, I read an, ed- an article uh, from the Christian, um, the Christian History Institute, and it was because of what Marcion had done, because of his work and his redaction, that the early church said, no, we have to put this together. This is how the first canon started to come together and be codified and we started to say this is what belongs to the canon this is what doesn't belong to the canon it was his work as the early church heretic that he was the arch heretic that prompted the early church to do what they did and that's why we have a word preserved for us today and see and that is good news now this is also a warning to everybody else This is part of the reason why tribulation and trouble comes upon the church. James tells you to count it joy when you encounter suffering. 1 Peter tells you the same thing. Why? Because the purifying work of persecution actually does its job. It purifies. It refines the faith. It cleanses. Because when you are confronted with a question, you actually have to come up with an answer. And when you come up with this answer, you purify the faith, you refine the understanding, and you now have a better basis upon which you can point people to the truth. And this is one of the benefits. This is why knowing a little bit of your church history, knowing a little bit of your early church heretics is so important because this stuff matters. It was part of the work of God in building and constructing his church, and it's part of our heritage as believers in applying the word today. So, Marcion's booted. 
His heresy is dead forevermore, right? No. <laughs> no. Dang it. Yeah, it's interesting how, how even his work continued beyond his death. And that's, that was, it was pretty pervasive. It, Justin Martyr said the whole human race knew about this. Isn't that so depressing? It spread to the whole human race. Like, we can't get the world to agree on the color of a dress now with our social media. And back then, they got people following away. See, bad news always travels farther than good news. It says it, it, it continued for 15 years after his death. That's the article I read. Um, now, here, you want to know, though, it gets worse, folks. It gets much worse. Because even 15 years after his death, we stamped out Marcionism in all its forms, right? Uh, now. Not really. Because this is an idea that carries down through church history. We still have this in the evangelical church today. Do you know what we call it? Yes. We call it red-letter Christianity. Yes. Congratulations, Marcion. Mm-hmm. You carried on. You have your own spiritual children. And, and see, this is one of my favorite groups, the people that say that the only words in the Bible you really need to worry about are the ones in the red letter. Now, if you're like me and you don't actually read a red-letter Bible, those are the ones that Jesus said. Those are the ones we listen to. Now, now they're, they're, they're noble, noble thoughts. It, it is. But they, they go too far. I agree. Because now this is, we won't cover all of these topics today. This is what's coming in the, next, in the few, next few weeks. But to deal in just the words of Christ, you have to, one, break up the unity of Scripture. That's one of the things we are talking about today. But two, you have to break up the idea of inspiration, the idea of sufficiency, and you really and, uh, undermine the doctrine of infallibility of the text because what you're saying is there are parts of the Bible that we can ball up and throw away if we don't like them. There are parts of the Bible we don't need, which means they were not assembled by a perfect spirit. They were not inspired equally. And they were not preserved equally because we have things that we don't need put in there. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to my kids, I don't like to talk just to hear myself speak. When I tell them things, I actually expect them to listen. So I think when God talks to us, and the prime way he speaks to us, Hebrews 1, is by his word, that the way that the the fact that he's talking means we should be paying attention. Now, here's the thing. Now, I know this is is baseline, and I know you red-letter folks have 15 ways that you can review this, but the thing I always want to know, and if you're a red-letter person, Michael at practicaltheologyministries.com, I would love to argue with you. So send the emails. I'll enjoy that. But if you're a red-letter person, please answer me this. You say we don't need everything that's in the Bible. We only need the words of Jesus. Where do you find those? What book are they in? They're in the Bible. Right. So what makes page, you know, 1,242 good because it's got red on it, but page 1,243 is no good because it doesn't have red on it? I, I, think, I think we're greatly forgetting the fact that there were no uh, verse numbers, there were no divisions, uh, even the Greek, all capital letters, no punctuations, <laughs> no spaces. There were no red letters in the manuscripts that were handed down. It so just I, was. I, I mean, we're adding two and we're taking away... Uh, I mean, we're, we're committing some serious crimes here against the Word of God. Well, that's because we're smarter. We have iPhones. Don't you know anything? Well, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's a dangerous place to be. I um, agree. But in, in the, re- it's the reason we're pointing this out is while this is not a large group, Marcion didn't start out as a large group either. Most of these heretics all start out with the same idea. It's a dude in a place with an idea, and he tells it to somebody else, and they like it. And they tell it to somebody else, and they tell it to somebody else. And the next thing you know, we're looking around going, what happened? 
-hmm. Like, how did we get here? Well, the way we got here is that we were not grounded in the disciple-making that we should have been grounded in. We were not being built up in the faith the way that we're supposed to be. It was at Colossians 2. And therefore, when this false teaching comes, we go, oh, I don't know. That might be a good thing. Let me check it out. No, don't check it out. Remember, slap. Open hand, but slap. You're better off that way. Know the truth because the truth sets you free. free. Obviously. Now I don't have any worries because I know what God has expected. I know where he has grounded me. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, there's Marcion. Dude's been dead for 1,900 years, but his ideas live on. Yes, they live on, but I've never met a red-letter Christian walking down the streets. And even if I did, I don't think I checked his you know, Bible to see what he highlighted. I understand that completely. Now, this is where we make our turn. Remember I told you what our layout is. We're going to try to give you a biblically grounded idea. We're going to try to then explain why that biblically grounded idea is important through, a, through an apologetic idea. And then we're going to try to take it and really put teeth into it when it comes to how we live in day-to-day life. And the red-letter Christianity that you've never met has a full expression in Christianity today. And if you would like to know where it is, it's in your LGBTQ movement. Because what are they attempting to do? They're attempting to redefine scripture based on cultural terms. They're attempting to excise Bible passages that they do not like. And they're attempting to redefine the story of scripture so that it points to something other than Christ. They Mm -hmm. attempt to reinterpret the things that have the church has always understood to mean a certain thing, and they try to understand it from their worldview, from from their culture. Instead of starting with God, they start with their own perspective. And see, this is why this matters. Remember, where, where did Lou say that Marcion's ideas start with? It starts with this idea of a dualistic God, which is one of the one of the key things you get out of. Uh, New Age thought, which comes out of old school Gnosticism. Because I start with my suppositions of God, rather than how God has presented himself in Scripture, I now interpret what God says in light of how I have constructed him. Therefore, I read his word in light of my idea. That's bad. Don't do that. Now, this, this is seen even in the way that the argument is presented today, because I know what you're thinking. I don't want to have this argument about the LGBTQ+, plus, I'm just going to stop it at plus, movement. But we need to have this argument because this strikes at the fundamental understanding we have about God in Christ. If you talk to anyone on the other side of the fence who's trying to redefine these verses, do you know how they're described? What are the, what are the Bible verses called that talk about homosexuality? Do you know, the, do you know the, the, uh, the term they give to them? They're the clobber verses. Oh, yes. <sighs> yeah, the clobber verses. Why are they called the clobber verses? See, isn't that just terrible? We don't want to hit people with the Bible. We don't want to be those Bible thumpers that, you know, yell at you and, and, and smack their Bible in the square and then, no. Old axiom that I try to live by, when in doubt, get a bigger Bible. Why do I want a bigger one? So I can hit you with it. No, we do need to thump our Bibles a little bit. Why do we need to thump our Bibles? What do our Bibles point to? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained himself in the scriptures. It's the truth that sets you free. If you're living a lie and you continue to lie to yourself, you're you're just deceived. You, You can't find your way out of the box. And if somebody comes and shows you the light, 
Now you can see just a little bit outside of that box. And see, that becomes the question. What we're, what we're really looking at and what we're really answering is, the, quest, the question we're really answering is, what Marcion came to the church and said is, did God really say this? I think that's one of the first lies that we've heard from the garden. It is. Did God really say that you can't eat that, Eve? What are the red-letter Christians coming to you and saying? When Paul says that, did God really say that? It's an argument from silence. It is. It's, it's a fallacy. It's not a very good argument. It doesn't hold water. No. And it, 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 it dehitches everything from the, the, the Jewish context of the time that Jesus lived. I mean... You can't just say, well, Jesus never said anything about it, therefore it's not important. That's exactly what Marcion says. That's exactly what the red-letter Christians say. And that's exactly what the LGBTQ plus... Did Paul really say? What they're really saying is, did God really say? So, did Sodom and Gomorrah really commit those acts? Yes. Yes, they did. Does God's law really prohibit our loving, caring relationship? Yes, and Leviticus describes it as an abomination before the Lord. Does Paul really say that the wrath of God revealed from heaven is a demonstration of humanity forsaking their design and corrupting their lusts? Yes, Yes, he actually does. Does Paul really say that homosexuals are redeemed and changed by God in 1 Corinthians 6. Yes, he really does say this. Now, you such won't... Such were some of you. Such were some of you. Absolutely right. right. Now, you won't know this unless you are grounding your scripture reading, study, and knowledge in a context and a history. See, this is your first lesson in how do we make theology make sense. That is the goal of this ministry, practical theology. How do we take the truths of scripture and make them make sense in your world? Your first step is recognizing that theology, the Bible, the work of Christ, none of these things occur in a vacuum. They occur in a context. context. So God starts the story off with what? What's the very first thing we see in Genesis? Creation. God creates. Do we prove God in Genesis 1? No. No. It's assumed he's right there. Right. In the beginning, God. What do you mean God? It's a general revelation of who he is based off of this, you know, the creation that you can see, you can feel, and you can touch. And you know that he's behind it. Yeah. And then from there, what do we get? We get people put in there to worship, to rule as God's representatives in his creation. And what do we do? We get lost in the muck and the mire as soon as we get two seconds to ourselves. Almost immediately. And from that beginning, what is God doing? He's promising a redemption. And the rest of the story of Scripture from that point is, what form will this redemption take? We know it's a son. What will he look like? Well, he's going to look like a prophet who knows God face to face, as Moses explains. He's going to be a king like David, but he's going to be one who rules eternal and righteously. That's why when you see pictures, why doesn't David get to build the temple? Well, there was blood on his hands. He's, he's, a, he's a bloody conquering king. He's yeah. not a man of peace, so you don't get to be the priest of God that builds the temple and be the right. man of peace. But see, here's, why, here's where the pictures are, are fuzzy. What is Christ? Christ is both. He's both David and he's Solomon. He's the wise man of peace, but he's also the conquering king who will defend and protect his kingdom and his people. 
I mean, that picture you get at Revelation is not, you know, sweet, soft, cuddly Jesus. Everyone come to me. I'm knocking at the door of your heart. It's like, dude, I got a sword. Get out the way. Right, right. <laughs> Bad things are coming. Yeah, he's going to be a conquering king. He is, and that's, that's what you see with David. So you see these pictures. So this son that is promised is going to be a priest. He's going to be a prophet. He's going to be a king. What form will this redemption take? It's got to be a sacrifice. It's a blood sacrifice that replaces our death and then conquers our sin and our, and our shame and our forsakenness. We need a new heart. We need to be reborn. We need the spirit of God in order to keep these things as Ezekiel and Jeremiah tell us. So that's why when you see Pentecost, that's a fulfillment. You see the day of the Lord coming and the prophesying. Peter's like, dude, here it is. The entirety of the story of scripture is a story that is pointing to Christ. So as we read the story and as we interpret, because that is what we're doing, we're interpreting the words that the Bible contains. As we interpret, we are doing that interpretation in light of where are we in the redemptive story? Are we in a historical narrative? Are we in a prophetic book? Are we in a poetic book? That matters. I mean, there's a reason why I'm not looking for an antichrist with, you know, seven heads and ten crowns and a scar on his face. Because that dude doesn't walk around. There's a reason why I'm not waiting for a dragon to climb out of the sea at New York City and burn the place to the ground. That's not how this rolls. We have poetry. We have figurative language. We have pictures going on. And and yes, I know some of you dispensationalists are like screaming at me right now. You're not even looking for an actual dragon to come out of the sea. So don't don't play like that. That's not what this is going on. So what genre of literature we're dealing in affects how we understand it, how we interpret it. So when we are confronted with somebody who goes, well, are you sure that's what the Bible really says? Here's your starting point. You know what? No, I'm not. Let's read it. Let's read it in its context and let's apply it the way they would have understood it. And then we'll carry that application forward. What you've just done in that moment is what we call hermeneutics, the art and science of interpreting text. You have actually done what biblical exegesis biblical understanding calls for and then you are in a position to actually refute false teaching how do you refute marcion why did you take that out of your bible by what authority do you remove that apostolic work yeah we don't need less of the word of god we need more of it that helps us understand the entire context of of the redemptive work that the messiah came to do if we only have the book of Luke, if we only have certain letters from Paul and redacted at that, we are not getting the whole picture. We're getting the picture that Marcion wanted to paint for us, not the picture that the creator wanted to paint for us. So when the person comes to you, and and they mean well, and they go, well, love is love. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Well, why do you say that? I say that because God is the one who defines my love. God is the one who defines my relationships. God is the one who defines how I interact with people. God is the one who gets to define sin. Why? He's the holy one. I'm the fallen creation. And it's not the other way around. So no, you don't get to define who you are, how you live, and what you desire. Your sinfulness defines a lot of that apart from Christ. And it is only in Christ that those relationships are set right again. Again, go back to Jesus' answer in Matthew 19. Well, then why did Moses let us have divorce? Because your hearts were hard. 
because you were evil, sinful rats who couldn't get this right. It was not this way in the beginning when God created them how? Male and female. female. Everything beyond that relationship when it comes to marriage, sexuality, as God puts puts it, is an abomination. Why? Because it's a rejection of his creation. It's a rejection of his sovereign rule and his declaration of how we're supposed to function. When Marcion carves up the canon, what is he rejecting? Is he rejecting Peter? He's rejecting God. Because who's the one who inspired Peter? It was God. It was the Holy Spirit of God. So to say, First Peter, not a part of my Bible. As Samuel said, they haven't. Re- as, as God told Samuel, First Samuel eight, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. When you say I don't like James, I'm taking that out of the Bible. I don't care if you're Marcion or you're Martin Luther. You don't get to make that decision. That's not a rejection of James. That's a rejection of the God who has redeemed and inspired James to write his words in that book. You don't get that kind of authority. We are the creature. We are the followers. Our job is to see what God has given us and then understand it and whether you like it or not, apply it and live it out rightly. Marcion is a historical example of someone who rejected that. Red Letter Christianity is a modern example of people who reject that. And the LGBTQ plus Christian, quote-unquote, movement is a movement that rejects that fundamental starting point. They start with themselves and then define God in light of who they are and what they want. Yeah. I don't think that the red-letter Christians are the only ones. There are people out there that are calling for uh, unhitching from the Old Testament. They don't think it's applicable. You don't need it anymore. That's not a very efficient way to evangelize and spread the gospel. They want, to, they want to do away with it all completely. And that was why, what was our starting point? When the apostles talked about Scripture. Where did he start with? They start in the Old Testament. Moses and the prophets. I mean, we rattled off four or five verses that we would have started with to explain Christ. Peter doesn't pick that. He picks Joel. Joel, yeah. But why? Because Christ is explained right there in Joel. Because Christ is shown in the book of Numbers. Because Christ's purity and holiness is demonstrated by the law of Leviticus. You know, the stuff we never read. You know, the preservation of God is shown in the counting of the Israelites and the promise fulfilled to Abraham of being this great nation. All of these things are demonstrations of who God is, what his character is, and why that matters to us moving forward. See, you can't get there if your starting point is, oh, look, there's a, there's a baby in a manger. And there's some dude in a turban with some gold and frankincense and myrrh. What just happened? Yeah. How did the how did the magi know to come look for him? Right. Why did what's how do they know what star to follow? <laughs> Why were they looking for a star? Why are people not freaked out by John the Baptist? Right. They're wondering, are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? Right. Because there's a promise in a history that they're living in light of. Christian, we have a heritage. It is rich. It is deep. And it is good. And all of these movements are doing the same thing. They're trying to chop out the heritage so that the starting point can become me. I don't know about you, but I've looked at myself. I don't want to be the starting point for anything. I know my sin, as Psalm 51 says, and my sin is ever before me. Yes. God redeems me from these things. Therefore, I start with him and not with me. So again, what are the lessons? What have we learned here today, children? What is the point of Scripture? Pop quiz time. Jesus is the point of Scripture. He is the beginning. He is the end. 
what happens if you ignore that story? Well, you end up with a truncated gospel. You end up with a loss of salvation. You end up with no history or heritage. You end up with a God of your own making. Isn't there a commandment against that sort of thing? You should make no other gods before me. Yeah, yeah. you should have no other gods, and then we don't make any idols. Yeah. See, don't just think an idol is some bronze or wooden statue you carved. It's anything that you place in place of God. And then finally, both heretics, then and now, engage in the same plot. Did God really say? The serpent tried it in the garden. He was successful. Marcion tried it in Rome. He was sort of successful. Red Letter Christianity has tried it. They've been marginally successful. Uh, the LGBTQ plus movement has tried it. Culturally speaking, they have been very, very successful. Very successful. I mean, turn on the news and check out quote-unquote Christian denominations that are just, they're surrendering left and right. Why? Absolutely. Because they've abandoned the rich truth of Scripture for a social gospel that has no teeth and no ability to save. So, any concluding thoughts? We have thrown a lot out there at you guys. It's fun, though. Now, bear with us. This was a little rough, we know, but this is our first go at this. The goal is to kind of keep this format as we go through because we think it's useful to give you a scriptural basis, to give you a historical grounding, and then make that scriptural basis and historical grounding applicable in real life. If you like this material, then please hunt out more of it. We have a monthly journal that covers a lot of these topics and a lot of this applicable theology. You can sign up for that on the website, practicaltheologyministries.com. If you have any questions, you can send me an email. I'm Michael, by the way, and that is michael at practicaltheologyministries.com. If you like Lou better than me, I, it's okay. You can have bad taste, but I'll forgive you. Mm. You can send Lou a question <laughs> at lou at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can follow us on Facebook. You can like us on Twitter, or you can do it the other way around and like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. It's your choice. All of that information will be on the newsletter and is on the website. If you have any other questions, by all means, we'd love to hear from you. If not, until next time, please read your Bible, study it, be grounded and built up in the truth of Christ revealed in his word. God bless.